Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Welcome back to the Moving to Live podcast. We are a podcast about movement along with our sister podcast, FitLab PGH. We believe movement is a lifestyle, not just an activity. Our main goal with Moving to Live is to bring you credible information for movement professionals, amateur aficionados, and occasionally you run across somebody in a podcast that originally you'd never heard of, somebody else recommends them, and you kind of drop down the rabbit hole and pe- periodically pop out and say, hey, I need to talk to this guy again. I want to thank today's guest, Don Moxley, for reaching out to me. Somewhere we exchanged phone numbers in addition to LinkedIn, et cetera, and he said, hey, you want to do a podcast again? And he's one of those people that Good or bad, whenever we get together and talk on a podcast, there's usually 45 or 50 minutes before the podcast, 45 or 50 minutes after the podcast, and before we start talking with Don and find out where his life's gone and how he's become mission-driven instead of uh, job-driven, I think it's uh, fair to say, Don, and I'm saying this jokingly, I'm a little bit pissed off at you because every time I talk to you, I end up writing down five or six books. And when I'm <laughs> catching up with my book list, there go, there it goes. So we've chatted a little bit beforehand, caught up, and now I've got four more books that I need to hunt down. So my book list is back up. So I am really happy to be able to talk to Don Moxley again. Don has one of those people who I think really meets the idea of it's not what you know, but how you know it. He's somebody who calls himself, I think this is a great thing. He said, I'm an applied sports scientist. So he understands the science, but he also understands that it doesn't mean Jack unless you can take that information and disseminate it to whoever you're working with, whether it's older people, younger people, athletes. Don, I know we've got a lot to talk about, so let's start to unpack it. Thanks for joining Moving to Live for a third time, our first third time guest. No, I'm excited to be here. I love the work that you guys do, and I want to support it however I can. I know the last time we talked, I think it was 
little bit over two years ago, you were working in uh, medical marijuana, but we actually spent a lot of time talking about trauma, talking about stress relief, quality of life. You switch gears a little bit, but I think you're still in that idea of the ethos of moving to live is moving as a lifestyle, not just an activity. And I think just uh, across the board, since I've known you, your idea is having that high quality of life and making other people aware. And we were when we were chatting uh, before we started recording, you said something. You said, we need to make sure we get this on the podcast. And you said something along the lines, I'm going to let you repeat this or, or say it in, in your words, we're living in a fishbowl. What was that quote? Or if you could paraphrase what it was, because I think this is something that's really key both for this interview and other interviews that we do on Moving to Live. Yeah, that, that it goes back to, thanks, Ben. What it goes back to is... Um, there was a great book I picked up years ago by Katie Bowman uh, called Move Your DNA. And, and I think she was the first one to really point out the fact that we have engine. Listen, our species has been successful based on its ability to adapt, um, whether it's adapt to environment or adapt to, to change, you know, some kind of change that, that, that we, we, we evolved, we're successful because we adapt. Our challenge is, is we've evolved the need to adapt out of our entire life cycle. Um, that we now live, I, here's a perfect example, is that every time I meet someone who tells me their back is hurting, and we know the data on back injuries and missed work and all those things, you take your thumb, you put it right there on the top of the pelvis in the back, and you say, is this where it hurts? And it's right on top of the iliopsoas, right where the psoas comes up out of the hip and, and attaches to the spine. Well, the, 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 the psoas attaches those four bottom vertebrae, crosses over the sciatic nerve, goes down into the hip, crosses over the sciatic nerve again, and attaches to the femur. The psoas, the iliopsoas is responsible for movement of the hip above 90 degrees. So your adductors move everything below, the iliopsoas moves up above. So anytime you're climbing, you're activating iliopsoas. We've, we've engineered climbing out of our lives. We don't step over rocks. We don't step up on things anymore. We don't, unless you're making a deliberate effort to go out and hike, unless you live in a house where you have to climb stairs. And we've even engineered stairs down to where you really don't have to bend your knee 90 degrees to get above it. Um, so this is just a simple example. We have, we have climate control in our home. So we never, we never have to live outside a range of temperatures from, say, 60 degrees to 80 degrees because we either heat it in the winter or cool it in the summer. We've eliminated the need to adapt. Um, so this is what I refer to as the fish tank that um, I go back to. I do this in a lecture where I put up a series of pictures of orcas, killer whales. Uh, one is in captivity. You look at his dorsal fin and it's bent over. Um, but when you see an orca in, in the wild, that dorsal fin is you. And again, most of them in, dorsal, in captivity are bent over. Most of them in the wild are straight. But we know that in captivity, there's not enough of environmental stress on the orca to cause it to express its DNA for the straight dorsal fin. So the question I always go back to, in the environment that we live in, in our own aquariums, what are the environmental stresses that we have engineered out that's causing us not to adapt to the needs of our DNA? 
Um, and again, Katie does a great job of this in her book. And so every time you take a look at a lifestyle or a wellness issue, something that's challenging people, I think it's always important to tell, listen, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of evolutionary development. You know, again, we have a DNA set that's, you know, it's been established depending on who you read for at least a hundred thousand years, maybe a million years, right? Um, we started about 10,000, 12,000 years ago engineering ourselves out of it with the development of agriculture. A couple hundred years ago, we go through the mechanical uh, a revolution. Uh, we, we Again, for most people, we live in homes. I live in a ranch now. I don't have to climb a stair if I don't want to. Um, so when my back is bothering me, it's usually because I've not integrated movement into in, with, with my femur above 90 degrees. I've got a simple little exercise I do. I, it's called one of my aspirin exercises. Um, you do this little fizz ball thing where I pull my knees to my chest and you know what? My back stops hurting. And um, it's, it's interesting that you, that you've brought up the, uh, example of back pain. I've herniated a number of discs in my life, which is anybody who's involved knows most of us will do that at some point. But I also had a period of time of about 10 years when I was starting my academic career where I reduced the amount of bicycling that I was doing. Mm -hmm. And that corresponded with increased back discomfort. Mm -hmm. The last 18 months or so, I've I've noticed two years, I've noticed, you know, when I ride my bike two or three times a week, my back doesn't bother me. If my back's bothering me and I get on the bike, it, it feels good. And I've been kind of bouncing around ideas and thinking, you know, why is this? What is this? And I realized my preferred method of back of bicycling, which I just realized is now when you were discussing this, is hills climbing and standing, oh. which is lots of lots of isometric contraction of the lumbar musculature and hip flexion to 90 degrees or greater than 90 degrees. So you've just directly or indirectly answered my question that I've been pondering. It's like, what is it specifically about my bike riding that I do that reduces my, my back discomfort? And you've just answered it. It's the fact that other than climbing stairs, and the other thing that makes it feel better is when I climb hills, when I, when I hike or I run up hills. And you've just mm -hmm. uh, directly or indirectly, whether you intended to, answered something I've been pondering periodically. Why is it that this feels better when I do this? Mm -hmm. Well, listen, I think there's simple, there's there, I, I believe there are simple explanations for a lot of the um, ailments that we deal with. Um, and this is, this has been the unique part of, of my experience over the last um, five years. Uh, you know, the last time I think I was on the podcast, we were coming off having spent about five years over at Ohio State as a sports scientist there and going through some really significant learning as it relates to understanding stress on athletes at an elite level, establishing KPIs, figuring, you know, at some point in time, you've got to establish what makes a difference and what doesn't. And I think as an exercise community, we've got a lot of work to do there. Um, you know, we were talking earlier about, you know, Instagram coaches and the role of social media in, in either the, the evolution or devolution of exercise science and the practice of, but, um, but at some point in time, you have to establish what makes a difference. What are the KPIs? Where and but you also have to figure out, you know, what do you measure? And 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 Ben, here's what I've learned in the last two and a half years. We don't know, we don't even have are close to having a clue as to all of the elements that we're manipulating. Um, you know, we we do our exercise prescription 
based on essentially max and an anaerobic threshold. You know, where do we switch from aerobic to anaerobic and what is our maximal level? The reason we do that is because we learned how to measure O2, CO2 in the lab and everything goes back to O2, CO2. Okay. That's what drives all of these exercise prescriptions. Well, you know, I, I taught, I think I talked about this in the last podcast, but one of the, th you know, one of the things that was interesting about the work that I've done in cannabis is that we have part of our central nervous system is called the endocannabinoid system. So our nervous system has receptors that, that we've identified CB1, CB2 receptors. We have ligands. So we have little molecules that bond with those receptors. And we have enzymes that either, either activate or deactivate the enzyme. That's what makes a system. Um, you and I have taught between us, we've taught exercise science for, do we have 50 years under our belt now? I think we're probably a little bit. Probably pretty, probably pretty, pretty close to that or more. And I had to jump headfirst into the pot pool to learn about the endocannabinoid system. And, and so one of those ligands that's naturally produced is called um, anandamide. Anandamide is an exercise driven molecule. As you move more, you create more anandamide. I personally believe one of the greatest values today to movement and exercise is the production of anandamide and how it interacts with your endocannabinoid system. Because when we take a look at CB1 and CB2 receptors, we see, we see a modification of anxiety. We see the activation of recovery. We see the moderate, we see the moderation of pain. Um, so it's not just your CB1, CB2 receptors. We see it acting in pain receptors and things like that. And I think, I think something to break in that you brought up the last time that partially contributed to dropping me down the rabbit hole is, you know, <laughs> you, you just mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, a few moments ago that uh, you had to teach yourself about the endocannabinoid system. And I know you mentioned in the, last podcast that we did a couple of years ago, there's actually a fairly robust body of research on that. And I remember you mentioning that to me and you going, you know, yeah, it's not done in the U.S. Some of it is sponsored by the U.S., but it's done in Britain and even more Israel. in Isra Israel. Yeah. And for the listeners there, if, if you, uh, we'll get Don to mention a couple of authors right here, but if you get on Medline or PubMed, there are a lot of uh, research gate. There are a lot of articles that are free for you to download and read that shows a fairly extensive uh, body of research that at least will get your, give you some background of saying, this is what the uh, Instagram uh, wahoos are talking about when they say, oh, this will make it better. This will give you more information and probably raise more questions than, than it gives you answers, which is, I think is a good thing. Yeah. And, and, and it goes back to, it goes back to this is that the activation of the endocannabinoid system, the production of anandamide may be one of the single most valuable effects of exercise. Okay. So just getting out and move, you're producing. Now the problem is we don't have the ability to measure it easily right now. We know it's there. We're working with a lot of uh, uh, um, hypothesis driven learning here. Um, we, we, there's a lot of science to support this. We know that the introduction of some exogenous molecules affects. So this is where cannabis extracts whether they be the cannabinoids or the terpenoids that, you know, listen, we, there's an entire business of essential oils in, in the world that's built on 
the production and the distribution of terpenes. Terpenes are these little chemical molecules we, they, they come from essential oils. There's, there's over 400 in cannabis. There's 400 advanced pharmaceutical ingredients in a cannabis plant. The challenge is they're not predictable in the production necessarily. But this is one of the values of starting to get outside the box on your thinking as it relates to what are the benefits, not just what are the benefits, what are the necessities of movement? Okay. And again, you and I talked about this a little bit beforehand. One of the things I've noticed in my life and something that has been become a big part of my recommendations is the value of zone two work. And this is zone two out of a five zone heart rate system. Um, so you know, anyone who, who, first of all, I can't imagine exercise without a heart rate monitor anymore. Um, it's there, there's too many things that go with this too many value value propositions, not the least of which is the scoreboard that you create that motivates you. Um, but when you start to take a look at everything around exercise seems to be around threshold, which is the top of zone three, the bottom of zone four, listen, it doesn't take a lot of work to look at zone four and see that it's probably a black hole, um, as far as exercise in zone four, maybe black hole is the wrong word. I've, um, I've heard it termed way, way back in the nineties as the gray zone. Yeah. That there's no, there's no benefit that comes from exercising in zone four that you don't get by staying in zone three. There's no additional benefit there. Now there is benefit of going up and touching max max going into zone five, coming down, going into zone five, coming down. But there's very little benefit of being in zone four above being in zone three. So, so this is an economic issue. If I have time to invest and I'm looking to, to trigger a process, this is one of the other concepts that I think is, is interesting that from an exercise professional standpoint, um, I think about what is the outcome I'm looking for? What is the physiological outcome I'm looking for? Am I, am I trying to trigger max strength development? Am I trying to trigger hypertrophy? Am I trying to trigger uh, metabolic development? What is the trigger? Um, because I think from an exercise standpoint, we see the effects of overtraining slash maladaption. It happens all the time. Our challenge is, is that zone four is where you feel it. You know, everyone's so used to going out and doing a workout and they want to feel it. Well, freaking zone four is where you feel it. The challenge is, is that you're burning some energy there that may not, that may be better preserved for something else. Um, and if you spend too much time there, you know, cortisol is going to get the best of you. Um, I had to break in with a question. It's maybe putting you on the hot seat. I don't, I don't think it is. I suspect you and I think similarly on this. And I think it really fits in because, Part of our job as professionals, I really believe, is is to educate people who maybe are looking for that education. But you know, you've described zone zone two, you've described zone four and zone five, and now I'm just thinking, you know, if you get on the internet and there's that nasty internet, the good thing is it gives you a lot of information. The bad thing is it gives you a lot of the information. But if you look at what people talk about as their favorite workouts or the the workouts that the uh, the the fitness trainers at many facilities put out there, people say this is good. They're essentially zone four, zone five, high intensity interval workouts. People like them because they sweat, they work hard, it's measurable. 
And I know you've got a background of, of having done some ultra endurance exercise and you're a little sick because you were a wrestler in college. So you like that suffering to go out and do zone one, zone two work. Unless you really enjoy that exercise, people are going to say it's boring. And when they say it's boring, they say, I don't have time. Now I disagree with that, yeah. but I'm interested because to me, there's nothing better than going out for what's been termed by people I know is shoot the pooch rides or something where, you know, you ride three or four hours, you hike for three or four hours and your heart rate barely touches zone four, maybe on one or two Hills. That to me is like the perfect day, but many totally people, agree. but how do you, how do you, how do you teach that? Or what are some thoughts that you can give to people who are listening? Maybe they're working professionally, or maybe they're just amateur aficionados who are hung up on that mentality. Harder is better, which First I think of all you teach. Okay. First of all, you understand the physiological impact of these things. You know, my daughter, um, it, my daughter has been a, a guinea pig for me her whole life. Um, and she just finished up her collegiate career. She played lacrosse at Ohio State. So she's transitioning from a division one athlete now to regular human scale. Um, and she and her buddy just went and joined Orange Theory. Um, and listen, I love Orange Theory was originally a, 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 a client of mine when I was still with Polar. They were just opening up in South Florida. And I, I love the idea of putting, you know, listen, they're doing heart rate driven stuff. They're doing a lot of good stuff. But at the end of the day, they're get. Here's our challenge. They're giving people what they want. And people are coming in and saying, I want you to kick my ass. Um, people don't believe they're getting value unless they're walking away shot, unless they're doing work that's resulting in, again, from a chemical standpoint, there's a cortisol response. You do that too much. We know that there's a, we know that you become too catabolic. Um, that's a challenge, but most, and, and again, a lot of people, there's a lot of people that are starting to recognize, okay, what is the value of this? And I am not for a second saying, don't do that kind of work. I'm saying don't do that work too much um, and take your program. If you're going to do the zone four or five stuff, and maybe it is zone four. I'm not, I don't want to, I don't want to take that away. Listen, as a wrestler, we used to love to train with our faces on fire. I mean, that cortisol response, that, 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 that lactate, that lactate generating process, which eventually leads to cortisol is what you felt. And again, it was, you know, I remember in the wrestling room, we used to go to our wrestling room and we'd wear a cotton shirt and I'd take two more with me um, because we sweated so much that we had to change the shirts in the middle of practice because you just couldn't wrestle when you were so sweaty. Um, and we thought that was good. And I'm not saying it's bad, but what I'm saying is that we have a lot of science to support. Don't do that too much. And oh, by the way, Go out there and do that zone two workout. Put in that relaxing time, that 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 non, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? That non, uh, uh, something I can do for a very long time, because there's a huge benefit that comes from it. Mitochondrially, from an endocannabinoid system, there's a huge benefit that comes with it. That cycle, the body likes cycles. It wants hard sometimes. It wants easy sometimes. And being able to drive that is where the real value proposition and our challenges is. So to go back to your question, teach, okay? Teach your client that it's okay. And this was important for me. 
Um, you and I talked about this beforehand. I follow a guy online named Steven Seiler. He's a great researcher over in, in uh, Norway. He's a Texan in, in the cardiovascular area. I love his research. This is the guy that established for me the value of zone two. Okay. It's when you take a look at elite cardiovascular athletes, zone two is a huge part of what they do. They, they, they figured this out. Cyclists with junk miles. Those are zone two miles. Um, and, and again, we're learning, we're learning that these athletes that spend this time there, there's a change in the gut microbiota that gives them the ability to metabolize lactate better. Okay. This is, it's not just cellular, it's in the gut. And, and again, with the latest work that I'm doing, we're opening up a whole new world of these molecules that frankly, we weren't aware of five years ago. Um, you always, you always raise a couple of questions or your, or your comments raise questions that I think that I think really fit in well before we talk, get into talking about what you're doing. Now you were talking with Don Moxley, you stressing the importance of zone two work before that you were talking about the fishbowl. <laughs> and I, and I'm curious, I, I, I know from, uh, from our background that you and I have a similar background growing up as we both grew up on dairy farms and just kind of extrapolating out, I'm thinking back. A lot of that work when you're doing farm work is zone two. And if we were originally an agrarian society just in the U.S., not trying to be U.S. centric, but we are a U.S. based podcast. And now, I mean, the idea of I would assume when, when, when growing up, you did some weightlifting, but working on the farm was was a different form of weightlifting. This living in a fishbowl probably even overemphasizes the importance of, you know, go to Orange Theory or, or go to uh, F45 or whatever, whatever your favorite fitness facility is and do some of those zone four heart weight things, but do additional stuff on your own. I mean, absolutely. It's kind of getting into the movement as a lifestyle, not just an activity. And I, I'm almost thinking, you know, as, uh, as you said, you know, teach your clients, educate your clients. I think one of the jobs as fitness professionals that we've done a bad job because we think it takes away from us is we've kind of put that emphasis on if you want to do something, you have to do it with us. You have to come to us, not so much in the endurance sports world, but in the other world. And it almost sounds like we would be better off long term, both for client retention, healthy quality of life of saying, you know, come to us but let us give you the tools to do additional things on your own so that when you come back to us for a future session or a subsequent session, you're better equipped to deal with it. So maybe two sessions a week of, of that zone zone four, just throwing it out rather than five. And those other four times you try to figure out how do I accumulate X number of minutes? And that X number of minutes is going to be different. I mean, I know from talking to people in my experimentation for me, that X number like the, the low end, if I can get out for about 45 minutes of zone one, zone two, most days of the week, in addition to those other things, number one, it gives me a pretty good base to do some crazy things. But number two, you know, without doing any lab work, et cetera, I'm calmer. I'm better able to, to uh, deal with people. I'm more productive in my work. And I'm wondering if that's related to that zone two work, cumulative year after year after year of just enhancing potentially my endocannabinoid system and and the production of endocannabinoids. Well, let's think about this for a second. What is the physiological signal that we need energy? Hunger, right? Mm -hmm. What is the physiological signal that we need hydration? Thirst. Thirst. 
So what is anxiety? Okay. A lot of times I think the general public and, and I think they see anxiety as the storing of excess energy. I don't see it that way. I don't think exercise, I don't think exercise burns off anxiety. Exercise creates molecules that then lower anxiety. Anxiety is this signal of your body to move. Okay. If you're anxious, move. The we can explain this with endocannabinoid system behavior. We can explain this with the molecules, the ligands, the receptors. We this all comes into play. Okay. So I think this is, and I think this is the challenge for the next generation. Oh, by the way, and, and I don't want to just throw, I'm not throwing orange theory under the bus. I think no, that's, that's why, that's why, really that's why I mentioned, I, th- yeah. I think rather than saying just orange theory, any, orange any, theory, orga- CrossFit, any of them, yeah. any organized high intensity exercise training yeah. program. <laughs> yeah. Now, listen, when you go to orange theory, here's what these guys do. They put a heart rate, they, they sell you a heart rate monitor that you wear, that you see your name on the wall. You see what's going on. That heart rate monitor will also talk to your cell phone. So if you want to go exercise on your own and do a two-hour walk on your own, do a little force bathing along the way, get out of your aquarium, get out into the real environment. Well, that heart rate monitor will talk to your phone. It can be multi. It can be multi-dimensional in its value. Um, and again, this is, you know, you would hope you get to the point to where you're owning your own shit, for the lack of a better term. You know, what's it take for me? You know listen, I am constantly looking at what's it take for me to be healthier. Um, And now, you know, again, with my transition, with my last transition, I'm working with a company now called Longevity Labs. Um, And I I went to Longevity Labs, I guess it's been April or May last year. About the same time, um, I brought my 85-year-old mother back up from Florida and she lived with us. And we found out that she had that her breast cancer had come back. She'd been a breast cancer survivor for 15 years. And I just watched, I had to, I had to help my mother transition through the end of her life, um, through the whole hospice thing. And listen, when you're working for a company called Longevity Labs and you're spending your time, I mean, my desk is now covered with articles on longevity and what leads to longevity and the books, and you're doing this reading. It's still the same physiological processes that we deal with as, as exercise and performance physiologists, yeah, but it's about the extending health span throughout lifespan. Um, this, this has been significant. And at the end of the day, I take a look at, okay, what are my behaviors? What are the things that I do? I mean, to go back and support a converse, a statement you made a little bit ago, I never lifted. There was never a strength training session that delivered more value than the summer day that we had to put 10,000 bales of hay in the bar. Okay. There's just, there's no equivalent to that. There, there was um, a little heat training built into that also. There, you're not kidding. Yeah, there's some heat shock proteins. Um, and, oh, by the way, we finished up the day, and we usually wound up at a farm pond, uh, diving into the farm pond, getting a little cold shock treatment too. So there's some contrast going on. But, um, you know, when, when you take a look at the – again, there's been this transition – what are the elements of my life that are missing? What do I have to do? You know, my, my DNA is different than your DNA. Um, you know, my, my mother just, again, my, we, my mother passed away at 85 years old. My dad passed away at 57 years old. So I'm now a year older than my dad when he passed. No, I take that back. 
my dad had a major coronary at 57 years old, and he's lucky to have lived through it. He then got another 20 years on top of that, but my dad could have punched his ticket, you know, so that's in the back of my mind. Where are my genetics? What do my genetics say? What do I need to pay attention to? You know, I'm, a, I'm an insulin-resistant type 2 diabetic. Um, so that means I have crappy insulin receptors. And what I've now learned is it's probably more than just the insulin receptors. It's also mitochondria behavior. It's your ability of your mitochondria. When you take a look at, 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 at mitochondria in the muscle, their ability to clear sugar from the bloodstream far exceeds anything that the universal uh, uh, insulin receptors are able to clear from the bloodstream. So exercise now becomes an even more critical part for me. And, and when you're when you're type two, you know what, when it comes to longevity, we got to pay attention to this. We then we then lead into these processes of cellular renewal, this process that's called autophagy, which is which I believe is one of the um, uh, topics that's going to get very hot in the next five to ten years. Um, understanding cellular renewal, what drives it? You know, at a, at a science level, we spend a lot of time talking about cellular regulators like mTOR, uh, the protein in our cell that regulates nutrients, and essentially we use it in an anabolic state. Well, with exercise. We produce, there's, there's another signal, AMPK, um, AMP kinase, which when we're exercising, we have ATP drop, we have AMP increase. Well, this regulates mTOR. This says, this says to the body, uh, don't go into a building state. Your, your resources are limited. Well, we're also learning that there's something that comes with that called autophagy, where the, where the cell looks inside itself and says, hmm, you know what, we've got some proteins in here that aren't really doing anything. Uh, they might have been malformed in their production. We've got some organelles. We may have some bad mitochondria. We may have some mitochondria that have just worn themselves out. Let's go ahead and digest them. Let's get them out of the cell. Let's use those parts to build new parts. Well, when we take a look at longevity, this autophagy process is really important. Um, and it expands. This isn't just in humans. This goes across all model organisms. We can measure this in, um, in baker's yeast. We see this in fruit flies. We see this in nematodes. We see this in mice. We see this in primates. And we're starting to see this, you know, it's a little, it's a little more difficult to do this research in humans um, because, you know, the it's a bitch if you're not in the control. Um, it's a bitch if you're in either. But um, we're starting to see this role of autophagy and again, I go back to this is an exercise nutrition driven process, which should be part of the exercise specialist domain. Somebody's listening to this. We're talking with Don Moxley and they're saying, well, you're, you're giving us a lot of information. Basically in 10 seconds, why should I care? Why is it important to me? Well, listen, this goes back, you know, Ben, um, when I was at OSU, I had I was doing work that was so freaking cool, and I loved it. I went to work, and it reminded me, when I got out of grad school in 1986, I took a job where I made a 1000 bucks a month, and I opened a health club at 6 a.m. I usually finished up or closed it at 9 or 10, 
And I freaking loved every minute of the day. Now, financially, I had to find something to, you know, thousand bucks, now, thousand bucks a month back in 1987, 88. That's a different story than it is today. Well, the work I was doing at OSU, you know, I was working for about half of what I really should have been able to, what I needed to. And, and while we we're doing really cool work, I finally said, I said, I can't keep doing this. I have to, I have to move on. Um, and the universe, you know, the universe moved, moved me into cannabis. I started learning. Um, I find that every time this happens to me in my life, it, the decision to leave was really hard because I defined myself as an applied exercise scientist, an, an exercise physiologist. I defined myself vocationally. And I, I was I was struggling with this desperately. And I, and I don't remember what actually got me triggered. And I decided, okay, what is my mission? What is my personal mission in life? And I thought about this and I wound up defining my personal mission to help alleviate suffering and contribute to the betterment of well people. Um, that's, that's kind of what I'm on earth here to figure out. Now, um, you know what? Having a background as an exercise physiologist is helpful in the in the fulfillment of that mission. Understanding exercise and movement is really important. I re, you know, I, I distinctly remember my mother's when I saw my mother stop moving or slow down. I I, I saw her kind of say, "Okay, I'm done." I'm you know, and um, and I'll tell you, this has been very motivating for me. Um, I I will fight this. Um, I will fight this in longevity. And part of longevity is fighting is saying, okay, what does it take? What do I have to do? Um, so the, the reason, the, the, the 10 second reason is that figure out what your mission is. Don't figure out what your job is. Figure out what your mission is. Um, you know, job just, listen, jobs are important. It's important to have money. It's important to be able to pay bills. Um, but at the same time, you want to fulfill you want to fulfill yourself. You want to wake up in the morning and be excited about what you do. You know, being, you know, operating via personal mission has opened doors for me. It, it, it helped me, it helped me deal with the fact that I go from, you know, the sports scientist at this really cool place and doing some really cool work to selling weed in South Florida. Um, you know, that was a funky transition, but, but it, it was my exercise science, my exercise physiology that helped me recognize the value of endocannabinoid system. And I, I, I know there's, there's some people out there who they have a job to pay the bills and then they have a passion project on the side. And that's, I mean, there's a, a number of people I've met through FitLab Pittsburgh. It's like, you know, I couldn't tell you what they do for a living, but they have something to do on the side. It sounds like at some point you realized, okay, this is what my mission in life is and whether it was which happened first the, this is my mission in life or you got a job selling selling weed and said oh this is my mission is to help people well i think it's part of a coping mechanism working with a counselor you know i've worked with counselors my, my, my whole life i had a great sports psychologist that i worked with between my junior and senior year wrestling that was life-changing for me um and ever since then, um, I have had I have had counselors in my life, whether they be psychologists, they're, they're usually psychologists of some kind. And, and frankly, a lot of the of of my personal reading 
um, is comes from people like Cheek sent me high's concepts of flow. And this is now being driven by a guy by the name Stephen Kotler. Stephen and I have become friends. Um, and he, you know, he's written a couple books, The Rise of Superman, and um, you know, similar books. He he drives the flow research collective. Um, uh, Howard Seligman's work on positive psychology, you know, it's it's as exercise professionals. We can't get people to do things until we change the way they think about doing things, okay? We have to have the psychological domain in our practice. Um, Teaching, when you take a look at this, you look at Prochaska's work with stages of change, and this this is a model that I think is critical for exercise professionals, uh, stages of change, pre-contemplation, contemplation, contemplation, action, and maintenance. you know, it's teaching that moves people from pre-contemplation, contemplation into preparation. It's that decisional balance area. What's the, what is the value? What is the hassle? Everyone sees the hassle. It's too hard. You've got to paint the value proposition for, to help them change. Once they get into preparation in stages of change, it's, can I do this? It's helping them understand, yeah, you can do this, Pick up a couple, and and so listen, I'm going back. Pick up a couple days a week at Orange Theory or at your local CrossFit box or some, you know, go in and go hard, but take that same device, that heart rate monitor, which I think should become universal. Um, I can't express, I can't express more powerfully the value of a heart rate monitor for exercise, but take that and use that with your phone for the other five days a week. You know, we talk about exercise. The American College of Sports Medicine defines exercise as what? Uh, 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 five days a week, low level, two or three days a week, throw some strength in there. I can't, I can't throw the definition right out there. No, movement is daily, okay? We didn't evolve to move four days a week, three days a week. We moved, we evolved to move daily. The challenge is creating the motivation to do that. So that, so that you see it, you see your scoreboard move, and you're excited to do that. There's the feedback necessary to get that behavior. I think that's, that's a great message. I mean, what, one of the things, I recently inter- interviewed Paul Cerese, or Cerese, who is a clinical exercise physiologist. He said he loves being a clinical exercise physiologist. He doesn't really recommend it if you want to make a living at it because it's hard. And I think you described the problem is unless you're full-time teaching researching, it's difficult to do that as a sports scientist, which probably is linked to why you changed jobs and why you've adapted and developed this ethos. One of the things I think might be interesting to listeners is very often you hear somebody say, and I know you've probably heard people say this, I'm too old to do this. Or if if they happen to not be fit, I'm too fat to do this, or I'm too weak to do this. And I know my dad went to law school when he was 73 or 74, and he's 86 or 87 now, and he's a part-time, awesome. pu- part-time public defender. So fortunately or unfortunately, I can never say I'm too old. When you were undergoing this, and I'm going to call it a metamorphosis from when you were at Ohio State working with the wrestling team, mm-hmm. how did you address the, because you know at some point it comes up for most people, it's like, I don't know if I want to do this. I don't know if I can do this. I'm afraid to do this. What do I do? Listen, I didn't have a choice. The universe, and, and again, however you want to classify this, the universe sat on me and said, you have to change. And 
Um, I could have fought it. I, I could have kept fighting it. I said, you know what? Nope, stop fighting. Let's let, let, let's recognize the fact that this door is closing. It's getting closed. There's not, you know, stop fighting to keep the door open. Take a step back and look for the next open door. Um, and, 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 you know, Ben, you know, I think if you're an exercise, if you're an exercise professional, a key, a key skill set is lifetime learner is the willingness to continue to explore. Uh, again, you know, I believe endocannabinoid system should be chapter two of exercise 101. The value of endocannabinoids in exercise is, is, is it's not, it's not cardiac performance. It's central nervous system performance. And we explain this with, with, and, and we'll eventually get there. You know, I was disappointed. My daughter just finished up a degree at Ohio State in exercise science. Endocannabinoid system is not part of the of the um, curriculum yet. I don't know if it's part of your curriculum yet. Um, I know it's only part of 18% of med schools. Um, I was just invited. I'm doing a talk, a continuing education talk to a group here in Columbus of physicians and physical therapists. I'm doing it on the endocannabinoid system. You know, uh, Pennsylvania, where you're at, Ohio, where I'm at, are both medical marijuana legal states now. Um, and there's a lot of physicians. There's still a lot of stigma around this. Um, and, and we, and we keep extending this, let's, let's go past cannabis. So one of the things that we see, um, expanding in the fitness and human performance, the biohacking realm is the utilization of this thing called intermittent fasting. There is a fasting process. What is the value of fasting? Well, the research shows us that organisms that have caloric restriction in their life cycle, live longer than organisms that don't, okay? We live, part of our aquarium is we've got too much energy available. We live in an energy-toxic environment. Um, and we are wired, you know, one of the books I really love is Rob Wolf's book, Wired to Eat. Um, we are, we, part of the evolutionary response is that food, we didn't have refrigerators, you know, 10,000, 20,000 years ago. Um, and we went for periods of time where we did not have calories available to us. There was natural calorie restriction. Well, what's been the impact of too much energy? Well, it looks like part of that impact of too much energy is the lack of autophagy in the cell, the lack of cellular renewal. And again, one of, you know, again, the universe has kind of put me in this place. So I'm working with this company called Longevity Labs. Uh, one of the founders is a researcher in Austria, uh, a guy by the name of Frank Medeo, who who identified this molecule that triggers autophagy. So in every cell of your body, there is a molecule, and this is men, women, plants, there's in the cell, there's this molecule called spermidine. And spermidine, it, 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 it is manufactured either in the cell on demand, it's manufactured in the gut, and it's also a natural circulating molecule. But Spermidine triggers autophagy. What we have found is that spermidine levels drop in humans every decade. So when we take a look, if we measure spermidine levels, and this also happens in model organisms too, but spermidine le levels drop over time. Autophagy, the ability to have cellular renewal, is part of um, is part of your immune response system. 
Once a virus or a bacteria enters a cell, if you've got a clogged up junky cell that's not experienced autophagy, it does not fight off the infection as well. If and, and we talked about the fact of, you know, we're, we're recording this in December of 2020. We're in the middle of a big surge with COVID. I, I, I had COVID symptoms back in April, something called COVID toes, but I was never really symptomatic. Oh, by the way, I started as part of my own personal practice, intermittent fasting, as a tool for managing my insulin resistance, um, cleaning up. So, so two of the things that I had started a while back was one, a lot of intermittent fasting um, and two, a lot of zone two training because type two diabetics, crappy receptors and low performing mitochondria. So mitochondria development happens in zone two. Um, so I was really investing time there. I was doing a lot of intermittent fasting. It looks like I had an infection back in uh, February, the end of February, I was in Florida at a conference. Um, but you know what? I never, I didn't get very sick. Now I've never gotten antibody positive from that too. And, you know, we don't fully understand this virus yet, but we do know that, that organisms with high levels of autophagy have improved immune response. The research that we're seeing on this is that when you start taking a look at neurological problems, when you look at like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, there are proteins in the nervous cells that just don't belong, the tau proteins. Well, autophagy is a process for cleaning these proteins out. And we've got some really interesting research. We've got a study coming out in Nature looking at, at spermidine supplementation and COVID replication that's going to be impressive. We just finished up data in, um, in, in Germany that's going to be equally impressive when we start to take a look at neurological disorders. But, but it doesn't change the fact. We have research now that shows Spermidine levels drop with age. You can supplement spermidine levels orally. We extract it from wheat germ um, and put it into a supplement called Spermidine Life. You can, it's very well tolerated in humans. Uh, we, there's tons of support looking at model organisms. But from an, you know, going back at this as a tool of informing exercise professionals, Endocannabinoid system is something we didn't pick up in school. Um, autophagy is literally, they just gave a Nobel Prize for autophagy in 2016. We're just starting to understand the mechanisms of this. Spermidine was, a listen, someone called me. It was funny. I have a really good friend down in Pensacola, Florida at the Institute of Human Machine and Cognition. Ken, I don't know if you listen to Ken Ford's um, STEM Talk podcast. Um Easily the single best human performance podcast, of course, after Move to Live. Um, the, the best podcast from a human out there. I love Ken. I love the work that he does. And he is a guy that I turn to every time I make a professional decision. And I'm invited to go work with this company. Um, and I texted Ken. I said, have you ever heard of this molecule spermidine? Well, my phone freaking spell checks, spell checks it from spermidine to spermicide. Um, and in the note, he figured out that I'm talking about spermidine. And um, he says, yeah, but I didn't know that you could get this naturally yet. I'm like, yeah, well, you know, we've, we've come across this company and we're going to be spinning this up. And if it weren't for a willingness to operate via personal mission, and move away from defining myself 
from a vocational standpoint. I'm still using my knowledge and my experience as an exercise physiologist in this work with this. And I am, the thing is, Ben, I am an incredible pragmatist when it comes to supplementation. Incredible pragmatist. I believe 90% of the crap that's being sold in the stores has zero value with the exception of a placebo effect. Okay. There's a placebo effect, but I think most of it has no physiological value. And if, if, if you're getting off on a placebo, God love you. Um, but I work with, I like working with supplements that have, that we can figure out, okay, there's more to this than just placebo. Um, and it looks like this is one of those molecules. And I, I think it's interesting that, uh, before you even talked about supplementation, you mentioned the importance of, I don't even want to call it exercise. I want to call it moving because really zone two exercise is moving. And when you get a base level of fitness, it's not that difficult. That's going for a call. Uh, that's going for a walk. But I'm interested along this. Uh, you're talking to a friend of yours one-on-one. -on -one, and again, this may be putting you on the spot. And they say, okay, Don, I, I, I hear what you're saying. It's hard. I'm supposed to exercise more. I'm supposed to move more, you know, depending on how it works for them. You know, I think we're going to see more evidence coming out with intermittent fasting, which may significantly to change the way many people eat. Um, and, you know, there's a variety of other things. People are going to say, what happens if I do all these things? Can I do all these things and not spend the money on a supplement? Or can I not do all these things and get most of the benefits if I just take a supplement? Listen, it depends on the supplement. And, 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 and again, environment tells a lot of the story. Um, intermittent fasting is not easy. Okay. Again, when you're living exercise and again, exercise is simply planned movement. Okay. The Amish don't exercise. They move naturally. They've, they've got plenty of movement in their day for the most part. Um, the, the, we have to plan it in. That is what is planned movement. Your planned movement does not have to be creating puddles of sweat and breathing hard and laying there trying to recover. It may just be movement, getting out, forest bathing, walking, things like that. There is a value to zone one, zone two. And, and, and if anybody gets this, I want to emphasize this. So <clears throat> when, as new, as dietitians make nutritional recommendations based on nutrient response, we take vitamin C because if we don't have vitamin C in our diet, certain, pro certain processes break down and we don't see the formation of collagens in the skin and it leads to a disease called scurvy. That's why we supplement vitamin C. But all vitamins, all nutrients, macronutrients, we're looking at a dose response work. We've identified the fact that they may not be present and we need to supplement them, okay? Well, when we take a look at autophagy, okay, autophagy may be, it's, so there is a physiological response that comes, that, that autophagy delivers. Calorie restriction causes the cell to go into a renewal process. It digests internal long-term uh, long non-valuable proteins and, and, and micronutrients, but it's not triggered in the presence of a nutrient necessarily. It, it's been triggered via calorie restriction. 
Well, with research, we've seen that, oh, the calorie restriction raises spermidine levels. But our challenge is this, is spermidine levels drop over time, okay? And the supplementation late in life may be more important. I'm not sure a 20-year-old needs to be thinking about supplementing spermidine right now, okay? But if you're 50 to 80, you know what? And, and I was talking to one of our customers that was out in uh, Sedona, Arizona. I mean, what a better place to live than Sedona, Arizona. Um, and, he, and he said to me, he said, I said, so why are you purchasing the supplement? And he said, because, because fasting is hard. Um, and, and I don't know about you and, and your relationship with Lisa. I have, you know, I've been married for, uh, what are we going on, 31 years now. Um, I now have a 22-year-old daughter living back in the house. You know, it was one thing when I was in Florida living by myself to create my lifestyle where I could drive intermittent fasting. I could I could stop. I could not eat until noon. Very easy for me to do. Um, I had a feeding window till six o'clock. At six o'clock, I shut off my feeding and I didn't have anybody disturbing this. Well, my, my, my wife essentially works an afternoon shift. So she works from noon to seven. And when she comes home, she likes to eat dinner. Okay. Listen, that messes with my fasting routine. Um, but my relationship with my wife usually takes precedence over my fasting routine. Um, and so lifestyle, that's part of the aquarium, okay? Lifestyle is part, you know, what is the engineered environment that you live in um, that you have to modify with behaviors? So spermanine is simply one of those tools that now that we we figured out the molecule, there's a boatload of science to support it. Um, if 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 someone wants to learn more about this, we've put up a website, spermidinelife.us. Uh, spermidinelife is the product.us. If you go to .com, it goes to our Austrian site. Um, but we've also put up a site that's called longevitybioresearch.org. Longevitybioresearch.org. And we'll have so, that we'll have that in the show notes so people can go yeah. to the show notes and get it. So we're pushing uh, a lot of the papers and so forth up there. If you are a medical professional, we have a site that's called practitioner.spermidinelife.us um, that we go ahead and push a lot of this information up through. But um, I can have a great diet. I can exercise on a regular basis. You know what? You and I have two different skin tones. Okay, we're looking at each other on the on the TV right now. <laughs> we have two different genetic backgrounds. Um, you may be producing vitamin D from the light that you're getting more effectively than I am. I mm -hmm. may take a little bit more light than you, so I have to modify my routine to get a lot, a little bit more direct light. So, so you know, in my personal life, I am investing in sauna. I am investing in light therapy. You know, listen, one of the things I learned living in Florida, man, I turn brown and I feel good. Um, being in that tropical environment and being able, you know, I said, if I'm going to live in Florida, I'm going to wake up and see the ocean every day. I did that. Um, I got to spend a lot more time in the sun than what I do in central Ohio. Um, I would, I would, I'll take a winter in Ohio over a summer in South Florida any day. Um, I did learn that. But when I'm in central Ohio, I have to pay attention to light. There's other nutrients that come into play here. Um, I have to pay attention to what is the effect of my aquarium? What is being engineered out of my life? 
you know, and this is the challenge. And, and so spermidine life is one of those unique molecules um, that, that, you know, it's been pretty cool to learn about the value of autophagy, autophagy's impact on a lot of these, on a lot of these uh, physiological conditions. Same reason we exercise, you know, there's benefit from that. I think, I think you can exercise an intermittent fast and light yourself to good health. Probably can do that. But I still take a one-a-day vitamin. I still take, uh, I, 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 I supplement vitamin D more because I think, I think there's a, a, a particular guy with my skin tone and living in central Ohio, you know, we won't see the sun now till April, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I have to invest in, in that process somehow. Well, I'm investing now too, also in the spermidine process because the value of the value of autophagy. When you start taking a look at longevity and longevity being that combination of health span and lifespan, I want more days. I want more days to live, but I also want more life in my days. Um, you know, again, I go back to helping my mom transition uh, from the living to. To through the end of her life, I'll tell you, it was hard. Um, and and watching, I, I I don't want the end of my life to be like that. Um, I don't want to be attached to a tube. I don't. I I I you know. I, I know. I've I've told the story before that when my parents were first married, they knew a lady who fell and broke her hip. Mm. And this was in the sixties. And at that yeah. point they stick them in bed. Cause you know, they're not going to live that long. The woman was 80 something. She lived, I believe another 20 years. Wow. And I used to tell this story in a, in a college health class um, when I was living in Florida. And I agree with you 100% on those summers, <laughs> but I was thinking on Thanksgiving when I was riding my bike in 30 degree weather, I missed <laughs> the Thanksgiving rides, but yeah. there was a gentleman on labor day who was in his eighties who went out for a bike ride and had a massive stroke fell off his bike and was dead when he hit the ground. And I used to blow the minds of the college freshmen by saying, isn't that wonderful? And they'd look at me like I was crazy. But I think if you talk to people as they age, uh, and I found this with moving to live when I talk to people who have been athletes. If I talked to you when you were 25, even shortly after your Ohio State wrestling career, you probably said, you know, if you were doing your endurance sports, you know, I want to run this time or I want to ride this this speed on on a 40K time trial. I suspect somewhere around 35 or 40, a switch, uh, uh, something switched. And if I'd ask you that question again, you'd say, you know, I just want to be able to do what I want to do when I want to do it until I can't do it. And I think that's well, what you talk about living life. Yeah. Let me, let, let's, I'll tell you, I have a personal goal. So in central Ohio, we have this ride, we have a bike ride that goes from Columbus down to Portsmouth. It's called the tour of the Scioto river Valley. Most years, there's six to 9,000 riders on this thing. And, I, and I've done this thing a bunch of times. If you're in the cycling community, it's, it's, it's a rite of passage on Mother's Day weekend. You know what? I want to ride Tosserv when I'm 70. Okay, I want to ride my bike 100 miles in two days. Um, you know, so, I, so I, I don't give a shit how long it takes me to get there. Okay, I'm not shooting for a five-hour ride like I did one time. I just want to ride my bike 100 miles. Um, I still... I, I, this is, I think these are, these are what I call trainable life events. Um, you know, when I, when I had my fitness facility, I said, how are we going to define fitness? And, and it's more than a picture of the scale on the wall or what your VO2 is or what your resting heart rate is. I define fitness as the physical capacity to enjoy the life you're given. 
That is that is my definition. Um, and I constantly go back to that. How am I enjoying life? And do I have the capacity to keep doing this? Um, you know, my, my daughter's 22. I want to, I want to be the father at her wedding and I want to be the grandfather. If I'm, if, if, you know, if the universe blesses me with that, I want to, I want to coach my grandchildren. I want to keep doing these things for a long time. You know, a, a couple of years ago, my nephew, uh, who now is playing division one football down in South Carolina, was preparing for the Florida State Heavyweight Championships, and he was a contender to be a Florida State champ. I got to go down and work out with my nephew for two days, okay? And you know what? I can still push. I was pushing him hard the first day. Probably could have won. Um, second day, forget it. I was broken, okay? Um, I mean, literally, we went into – and my, my Achilles starts snapping, and I'm like, okay, I'm out. You know, I can do one day. I do not have two. Um you know what? If if the universe blesses me with a grandchild that can wrestle, I want to still be able to teach technique. Um, this is kind of, you know, physical capacity to enjoy the life we're given. That's what I enjoy doing. And I want to maintain that capacity. Um, and it looks like it looks like establishing exercise. First of all, I have to pay close attention to what are the most drastic things that can affect my life cycle. You know what? Insulin resistance is a big issue. When you take a look at its effect on cardiovascular health, I have to pay close attention to that. Um, part of that is intermittent fasting. Part of that is exercise. Oh, by the way, that was giving me a secondary benefit that I didn't I didn't know at the time. We didn't learn about it. Listen, autophagy is just being described. Um, it's biohackers that are driving this. You know, the, the universe luckily dropped me in a place that says, hey, you're getting ready to get a rapid course on autophagy um, with you're going to get paid to learn about this. And I'm and I'm and I'm blessed for being able to do that. And I want to pass that on. That's why we're doing these kinds of things. But it's that physical capacity to enjoy your life. You're given extending health span to meet lifespan. You know what? My my college wrestling coach died a couple of years ago. He was out deer hunting walking, driving deer, massive coronary drops dead on his face. And what was the movie legends of the fall with Brad Pitt and, mm -hmm. um, and the narrator, the native American narrator says he died a good death. I, I remember that the first time I heard that. And I said, you know, part of this is, is that, you know, what is, what is that good death? Um, and being prepared for that. We've been talking with Don Moxley. He is working at Longevity Labs. We will have links for all the websites he mentioned. What I always like about talking to Don is he really makes you think. I think with, th with this podcast episode, in addition to introducing you to autophagy, and I think what Don always emphasizes, which I think is critically important with uh, new discoveries and with information is everything that you have is a tool. It's how you use it and finding people to bounce these ideas off. I think if we could just give a synopsis of this podcast, it's talking about health, taking personal responsibility, investing in your health, using things as tools, both exercise, potentially various other things such as intermittent fasting, supplementation that has research to, to back it. And the whole goal is if you're an athlete would be to improve performance. But if you're a person, think of yourself as an athlete and your performance is having that quality of life. So as he mentioned, maybe you're deer hunting and you drop dead of a massive coronary or you're doing what you're able to do up until the day you die. 
Don, I want to thank you once again for coming on Moving to Live. I have a suspicion we're going to get you on again and talk more about autophagy and supplementation and enhancing aging so that you can do what you want to do since you're a little bit older than I am, but both of us are on the north side of 50. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if listeners listen, what are we going to do? So if you go to spermidinelife.us, our website, and you want to try Spermidine Life, use the code M. 2L. So M, the number two, the letter L, 50, M2L50. And that'll get you 50% off your first purchase. So if you want to try uh, Spermidine Life uh, and you learned about it, put in that code and you'll get half off. And we'll put that in the show notes, Don. This will not be our last conversation. I suspect we'll come up with some projects to promote movement and most importantly, quality of life. Maybe I'll join you when, when you're uh, 70 on that 100 mile ride. Uh, let's 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 hope we're having again my wrestling coach he was he was um he was 84 years old when that happened and again i contrast that to you know to to his i mean his health span went right through lifespan um and i think about you know my my mother's my mother's uh uh experience um and listen i I think it's something that you think about and you, and you make up your mind, you know, we can get caught up in today. Um, But at some point in time, you know, we want to take a step back and say, well, let's figure out what, you know, where we want to be. What is that goal? And I think shifting from athlete to human, not that athletes (laughs) are humans, um, the goals get longer versus shorter. You know, that, that athlete goal is usually within a week, a month, a, a semester, um, you know, now we're working with goals that are 20, 30 years out, um, and they may take a, a different kind of investment. Great advice. Great information. Don, thanks again for joining Moving to Live. Thanks, buddy. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play, and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore MOV number two LIV. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.